0: We're going to come to a time now in our service, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word as we do each week, we'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, there should be even a Bible in front of you underneath the chair in front of you, if you want to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 15, today starting at verse 21, Matthew 15, 21, and when you found that, if you were able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? When we finished reading, I'll say this is God's word, and I'd love you to respond by just saying, thanks be to God. So let's read this together. Matthew writes this, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, "'Send her away, for she's crying out after us.' And he answered, "'I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel.' But she came and knelt before him, saying, "'Lord, help me.' And he answered, "'It is not right to take the children's bread "'and throw it to the dogs.' And she said, "'Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs "'that fall from their master's table.' And Jesus answered her, "'O woman, great is your faith. "'Be it done for you as you desire.' and her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went out from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. This is God's word. may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask now that you would illumine the preaching of your word. Would you open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive what you have written. We want to place ourselves underneath the authority of your word uh, and not stand over it in judgment. And I pray that you would accomplish the purpose for which you sent out this word today. You promise us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I can still remember the feeling of shock initially that then kind of transitioned and moved quickly into a state of, like, indignation. When my mother... I came into the TV room where I was watching TV late summer afternoon there in my family home in Kansas where I grew up, and she turned off the TV, like right in the middle of my show, and informed me that my obsession as a 15 to 16-year-old young man with days of our lives was not appropriate. And then went on to say, I mean, she didn't say this, but she certainly implied it, that Men watching soap operas at all was also not really appropriate either. I mean, right? I couldn't couldn't believe, like it was just complete indignation that she would say such a thing. Uh, But then just to make matters worse, when I found out later, when I informed my father of what she had done and said to me was that he held the same sexist views that she did. Men, just because I'm a man, I can't watch soap operas. It was... Unbelievable. Now, this was over 30 years ago, and, and it's kind of a silly example, I get it, but I think it's safe to say that something like standing up for our rights, fighting for our rights either as an individual, uh, a group, whatever it is, that's something that we're all familiar with to one degree or another, and something that I would say hasn't exactly eased off or slowed down in any shape, form, or fashion since that time, Uh, In fact, if anything, I'd say that standing up for your rights, that's something that's at an all-time high right now, in fact, probably dangerously high. I mean, there's a a great, good side to that fight, which I think we'd all agree with. We'd all say, absolutely, I mean, we should all stand up against, like, fighting for uh, racial equality, gender equality, all these kinds of things. We we would champion the causes of men like William Wilberforce, uh, fighting to... Uh, end the transatlantic slave trade uh, in Britain. We want to stand up with the people like Martin Luther King fighting for uh, racial equality. We, even what we see right now in Iran with uh, fighting for gender equality, we, we would stand with those things and say, yes, right, good, we stand with that. But I think what we're also seeing at the same time is kind of a move to almost just kind of like a frivolous nature of this as well, which feels like it's kind of gotten out of hand. Um, <laughs> we've gotten to the level... Where the rights people are fighting for are things like the right to watch soap operas or like to have a hot enough latte. Like these are the big things we're fighting for, which which seem like kind of just like the the, the kind of made up imaginary offenses of an entitled child. And then swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. I think there's also a scary. Uh, a really kind of shadow side to this fight as well, which you see this primarily in the online world, where even reasoned disagreement is just like shut down, shouted down, and anything other than just unquestioning agreement with the majority opinion is just—if that's not you, you are canceled—and like strung up as an example. Like, there's a whole breadth of this, and it just seems like it's everywhere, and it's at an all-time high. This—this this fighting for our rights. I think you see all of this and more as it relates to this today. This kind of like, this is mine. Uh, I should have this. I shouldn't be deprived of this. It's my right. I think we, we see that in all kinds of these ways in our world today. And yet, having said all that, something you see in our passage today, in Matthew's gospel as it relates to all this, is something I don't think almost any of us have seen before or are at all familiar with. Namely, someone fighting for and contending for favor, help, blessing even, when they know they have no right to ask for it whatsoever. We're really familiar with the standing up for my rights part, fighting for what's mine. We don't understand what this means to fight for and contend for something which we know we don't have the right to ask for. Now, there's a few surprising, unfamiliar things in our passage going on, right? I think uh, not least of which, watching Jesus here refuse someone coming to him for help and then dismissing her in what, I mean, initially sounds like an extremely rude way. I mean, was anyone else triggered by reading this passage? They were just like, excuse me, whoa, wow. Um, you, you could have just said no, <laughs> right? We don't want to be like the dogs thing here. And, 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 and at the same time, though, in fighting for And contending for something from Jesus that this woman knows she has no right to ask for, I suppose it could be said, this Canaanite woman's request is equally out of place and inappropriate. You know what, we're going to talk about it. We'll dig in and kind of talk about the offensiveness of this passage and what's going on here for sure. But the reason I want to look at this passage together with you most of all today is because of what I believe it reveals about the way every single one of us need to approach God, but so often don't. And that is, we need to approach God in this way of empty hands and having a right understanding of the nature and character of God instead of coming to Him with our accomplishments and trophies, our our excuses and our presumption that we so often bring along with our requests to Him. The the former, coming with His empty hands, understanding ourselves and God rightly, is an an approach to Jesus that I'm just going to call contending faith Whereas the latter leaves us offended, disillusioned, and ultimately rejecting of Jesus, just as it did for the religious rulers in his day. And in order that you and I might learn what this is, contending faith, how do we approach God with this contending faith ourselves in order to experience both the blessing as well as the commendation of God, just as this Canaanite woman did, I want to look at this passage together with you in just two ways. I want to talk about... The practice of contending, and then what precedes contending. Practice of contending, what precedes contending. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, I'd love it if you could open them again with me to that passage. Follow along as we work through this, Matthew 15, verse 21. Follow along as we learn about both the process and the product of contending faith. So let's look first of all at the practice of contending. What does this look like? The practice of contending. Now a few quick details that we need to just touch on so we can get a fuller picture of what's actually happening in this passage. First of all, Tyre and Sidon, this district that we see Jesus withdrawing to in verse 21, very quickly, it's a significant part of the story, not necessarily because of historic significance of these places, that's not the point here, but because it reveals Jesus departing from Galilee and entering now into Gentile territory. He's headed out of Israel, and now he's going into Gentile regions. Secondly, Canaan. The land that this woman, in verse 22, crying out to Jesus is apparently from, that, that place may ring a bell for you if you are somewhat familiar with the Old Testament. Canaanites, if you remember, were the historic enemies of God's people. And their land was the land that God had promised Abraham that he would give him as an inheritance. Moses and Joshua lead the people into the land of Canaan after the exodus from Egypt. The theme in particular that I'm wanting you to see and I'm trying to highlight here is that these details talk about Jesus' move into an engagement with non-Jewish people and places. That is, those who are not part of the lost sheep of the house of Israel that Jesus refers to there in verse 24. Verse 24. But look back now at verse 22 of our passage. As Jesus moves into this Gentile territory, he's approached by a Gentile woman crying to him for help. And lots of times when we hear that term crying, we might think that comes just like weeping, like kind of a weeping tone, maybe crying out like in a sense of like a photographer at like a red carpet event, it's something like crying out to a celebrity, look this way so I can get your picture. Um, We might think of it that way. And yet the word... Matthew uses here is actually a term that means yelling loudly, and in some cases, even screaming. And understanding that probably helps us understand better why the disciples are begging Jesus to send her away in verse 23. It's like, like it's, it's loud, embarrassing, crying out. But already our sensibilities, as well as familiar expectations of Jesus, are disturbed as we see Jesus responding to her desperate cries for help by not responding to her at all. He doesn't even... uh, Verse 23, beginning there, says he did not answer her a word. Just keeps walking. But again, because she's yelling so loudly, apparently even pleading with Jesus' disciples, trying to get them to get him to help her, uh, Jesus' disciples ask him, send her away, and the implication that we get from Jesus' response to them in verse 24 is, is they're basically saying, grant her request so that she'll stop following us. Just like... Give her what she wants, so she'll get out of here and leave us alone. And in response to to the disciples directly, but ultimately to the woman as well, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I don't want to get caught in the weeds with this, but just very briefly. Both Old Testament and New Testament scriptures highlight throughout the the priority of God, first towards his covenant people Israel over Gentile nations. That's kind of what he's referring to there. Uh, That is until the coming of Jesus. Uh, where the Apostle Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2 that the covenant people of God, that, that thing shifts from a historic people of Israel to this what he calls one new man made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. Something else important to note is that in referring to his mission being to the lost sheep, Of the house of Israel is in no way to imply that there was kind of this select group within Israel that Jesus came for everyone else was good nobody else needed saving but these lost sheep he's coming for no as Michael Wilkins knows in his commentary he says this expression indicates the lost sheep who are the house of Israel but this is now where we get to see kind of the first steps of contending faith what this looks like from this woman because I don't know about you but considering all the boundaries she's already had to go through all the 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 racial, social, gender barriers that she's crossed already just to find this miracle worker that she's seeking help for, a response like this would send most of us home, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd be gutted, you'd be disappointed, maybe angry, but you'd still probably give up and, and walk away. I mean, he's not even acknowledging her existence. He's not even giving her just a polite sorry, but no. Most of us having already crossed all these other boundaries to get there, person doesn't even respond to us, we'd probably give up and walk away. But look here, the clear indication is that the disciples' request when they're saying, no, send her away, means she doesn't give up. She, she keeps crying out to Jesus in spite of his silence. And then, when she can't seem to make any headway whatsoever with this pursuit, verse 25, her next step is just to get in front of him. She just blocks his path so he can't keep walking. She comes and kneels right in front of her, makes sure to get eye contact with Jesus, and now look, says, not cries out, she says, Lord, help me. Now Jesus does answer her, but yeah, look again at verse 26 in what appears to be a deeply insulting way. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. I, I probably don't need to... Unpack any kind of historical background information to, like, for us to understand that's, that's not a polite way to respond to anyone. Referring to people as dogs, not, not uh, a kind way to respond to someone. dogs in the first century in particular, were not these cute house pets, primarily that you see hundreds of people walking around on Jericho Beach with, you know, carrying around in their Louis Vuitton bags. They, 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 were, they were scavengers, they were an, wild animals primarily, and as you already know maybe gentile dogs was a common insult hurled at non-jewish jewish Jewish persons by the jews Uh, gentile dogs this is how they refer to them but pause before we lecture jesus on the inappropriateness of his language use of racial slurs we need to remember what i pointed out as we began namely this woman was a canaanite that's an important detail remember these are the deep historical enemies of god's people notoriously wicked and notoriously wicked towards the people of Israel. And just to give you a perspective of what this looks like, what this interaction actually would have looked like from a historical perspective, I need you to imagine Jesus, instead of walking along in what he's often pictured, and I need you to imagine Jesus instead walking along, shaved head, striped pajamas, and a Star of David on his chest. And the woman approaching Jesus in a Nazi uniform, asking for help. That's literally historically, as far as like how these people interacted, what we're talking about, which means all of a sudden I think you have a better idea about what's going on as well as how inappropriate it is that this woman would be coming to a Jewish Messiah asking for Israel's blessings at all. She shouldn't be here asking for this. Now, if you've ever studied this passage before or or maybe heard sermons on it, you might know already the word Jesus uses in verse 26 for dogs is not the usual term used for that expression, Gentile dogs. It's a diminutive term that means more like little dogs or puppies. So already there's kind of a softening of the language that, yes, at first just sounds outrageous coming out of the mouth of Jesus. But something I learned from my study of this passage this past week that I'd never considered before was whether Jesus' response to this woman is actually just a one-sentence parable. You ever think of that? A one-sentence parable. And I now think that's exactly what's going on, because think about it. Whenever you read this passage, or if you've looked at it before, we almost always focus on the offense of Jesus referring to this woman as a dog. But what we almost never consider is the fact that Jesus is also referring to the covenant people of God, the house of Israel, as children. Without question, yeah, I guess, I mean, the people of Israel, there's children in it. But, I mean, is, is the, the nation of Israel, is that a nation literally of toddlers? And is this Jesus literally feeding them at any kind of literal table? No, right? He's using imagery, speaking in parabolic language in order to communicate a deeper truth. A truth that this woman with children would have clearly understood that there's an order to how feeding takes place in a household. That's what he's ultimately saying to her. There's an order in how feeding takes place in a household. Family pets, the closer description of Jesus' term for dogs here, are never fed before or to the diminishment of the children in the home. That's what he's getting at. And what's so awesome, what demonstrates the truly great faith of this woman is when you look at verse 27, she responds to him within the language of the parable. She gets it. She understands, as you see, she says, yes, Lord, that's exactly right. You'd never feed the family pets before the children. But then look, she goes on to say, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. As if she's, just, she's saying, no, I don't expect for a second that you'd feed me before or in place of the children of Israel. I don't expect that. But then she goes on to say, it's as if like she's saying, but, but here's what I understand. So great is the abundance with which you have to feed them I believe there will be more than enough to feed me once they've been fully satisfied. You've got so much to give, so much to feed them with, there's going to be lots left over for me to eat as well. Which I can't prove at all, but but considering that made me wonder and immediately think back to the feeding of the 5,000 Just a few chapters earlier, Matthew 14, where if you remember, after all had gathered there and ate and were satisfied to the full, they still pick up 12 baskets full of scraps. And it made me wonder, could these not have somehow been a picture or a foreshadowing of the very crumbs from the master's table this woman came hoping to be fed with? He's got more than enough to feed his children till they're fully satisfied, but there's still lots left over to feed the others. Incredible faith. Incredible courage from this woman with all the social, cultural, racial cards stacked against her, still contending with Jesus for her daughter. One commentator perfectly describing this woman as like a female Jacob wrestling with God in the wilderness, saying like him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. She's fighting. And in response, verse 28, almost exactly as he responded to the Roman centurion a little bit earlier in Matthew 8, Jesus says essentially, wow, wow, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And we're told from that moment her daughter was healed instantly. There's so much we could say about that interaction between Jesus and this woman. I I was quite moved uh, all, all this week as I'm studying this and writing this, but as it relates to you and I today, and our practice of contending faith, to try to do this ourselves, I I want you to think about your own pursuit of Jesus for a minute, particularly whenever you have some desperate need or request that that you're bringing to him. Just think of that, what that need is in your own heart right now. And the question I want to ask you to consider is, how do you respond to either the silence of Jesus or what feels like a hard, unexpected response from him? When you're bringing your desperate need to Jesus, how do you respond To those things, the silence of Jesus or a hard, unexpected response. Because what we clearly see in this passage is Jesus is commending of this woman, commending of her faith as she contends with him for her daughter. But how often do we give up, just walk away from the fight the moment Jesus doesn't respond either as quickly as we think he should or in the way that we think he should? I don't mean for a moment to suggest that either those things are easy to experience. They're not. We should just you know, be fine and just, oh yeah, just, just do it. I'm not suggesting that. It's not. It's, it's incredibly hard. Silence of Jesus can be devastatingly hard to endure, particularly if you've got an especially desperate need or you've been coming to Him for a long time. Silence of Jesus is very hard to experience and endure, just as uh, experiencing a hard, unexpected response from Him can be. When you're coming to Him with a clear idea of what you think and He responds in a way that's different from what you expected. It doesn't meet the need in a way that you hoped he would. Those can be incredibly hard things. And, and honestly, I mean, with either of those responses that you see from Jesus in our passage, the question that you might have like me is, if Jesus already knew what her need was, and he knew he was going to help her and, and heal her daughter, why would he respond to her or, or us for that matter in either of those ways? Why not just do it? And yet, well, yes, absolutely, the Heavenly Father knows what we need before we even ask Him, as Jesus says plainly, Matthew 6, 8. What we can't see so often, or what we forget so often, that the thing that causes us to give up the fight rather than remain and contend is this, that to remember that Jesus is just as concerned about the creation and building up of your faith as He is with meeting your need. That's the part we so often forget. He's just as concerned about the creation and cultivation of faith as He is about meeting your need. He cares about both. And when you remember that, well then you can submit yourself much more easily to this practice of contending faith because now you're looking for growth. You're looking for depth of faith as well as having your need met. You're saying, in the midst of this waiting, what are you trying to create here before you've met that need for me. And when I believe that, and when I remind myself of that, God, he truly knows my need. He knows it, and he knows me better than I know myself. I can trust his plans and purposes for me. I can trust that they're right. I can trust that they're perfect, and continue to contend in faith rather than give up and walk away. When Jesus doesn't respond to the kind of vending machine faith we so often expect from him. Okay, so that's the practice of contending. Again, just kind of shifting our perspective and focus from just a bare meet-my-need. Here's the thing I'm presenting to you, but understanding that his call to contending and wrestling with God through prayer can actually be an important part of his answer. Last thing I want to look at with you quickly here is what precedes contending. What comes before? What what precedes contending? And we need to look at this because, if you're at all like me, we see the practice and resulting Blessing and commendation of Jesus for this woman as as she contends with Jesus and has this great faith. The question on most of our minds is, okay, great, like that, like the result, that's good. But how could I ever do that myself? How how do I have contending faith like that myself? What do I need? What's required in order to practice contending faith like that in my own life? Great question. I, I, I think what we're shown in our passage are two key kind of prerequisites prerequisites, if you will, that you kind of need in order to truly practice contending faith like this in our own lives. One is having a right understanding of who Jesus is, and the other is having a right understanding of ourselves. Firstly, let's look at the right understanding of who Jesus is. If you look at the way this Canaanite woman addresses Jesus, look back at verse 22. You'll see what I mean by having a right understanding of Jesus. You see there, she refers to Jesus in two ways, as Lord and Son of David. Lord, Son of David. Now, yes, Lord, that could absolutely just be like a term of respect that she's using for Jesus, not at all referring to him with any kind of divine significance. And yet, when you combine that with calling him Son of David, as well as the fact she's coming to Jesus at all for healing and deliverance for her demonically oppressed daughter, suggests she may be referring to Jesus as like Lord God, Lord, divine ruler over all things, not just kind of a polite address coming like, good day my lord like she's actually coming to him meaning lord god and then son of david that's even more striking coming from a gentile woman as this was a uniquely uh, uh, this was a term uniquely from israel's history referring back to both king david himself one of israel's greatest kings as well as the davidic covenant where god had promised through david that one of his offspring would rule on his throne forever in supreme power and, and totality. It was ultimately a messianic title, son of David. So now, look, here she comes to Jesus, not as some wise sage, not as some traveling miracle man, but as Lord and Messiah. That's who she sees Jesus as. What I'm saying is that for you and for me today, that's the first key. That's the first prerequisite. What, we, what must precede contending faith, if we want to practice it ourselves, is that we must first see Jesus as Lord and Master. Understand him rightly for who he is. Because if he's not those things, if he's not Lord, if he's not Master, if we see him instead as genie granting Jesus, who's going to grant our wishes, we see him as vending machine Jesus, who grants what we want if we put enough coins into the slot. If we see him as frowning judge Jesus that needs to be kind of coerced and and pleaded into helping us, we're never going to remain long enough to contend with him. Because we'll never trust that any of those people knew us or our need well enough to respond in a way that was better than what we could have asked for ourselves. We won't stay long enough if we see him wrongly. So we need to come to him, first of all, understanding who he is, Lord and Master. Secondly, if you look at the Canaanite woman's request, again in verse 22, you'll see what I mean by having a right understanding of ourselves. For if you notice before, she asked Jesus to do anything for her daughter first words out of her mouth are, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, which, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when I hear that, what immediately reminds me of is Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. There you've got this Pharisee coming to God with all of his accomplishments and and, and morality and, and all of his good deeds, and he's praising God even that he hasn't been made like that filthy tax collector at the back of the room praying. And then different tax collector, we're told he won't even raise his eyes to heaven. He just beats his chest and prays have mercy on me, a sinner. Which means this Canaanite woman comes to Jesus first of all rightly understanding who he is but she also comes with a right understanding of who she is. Namely that she doesn't come as someone in any way worthy of or owed the favor that she's asking for but simply just falling on Jesus' mercy. As Tim Keller powerfully observed of her approach to Jesus, he says, this is rightless assertiveness. Goes on to say this. She's saying, I'm coming to you not on the basis of my goodness. I'm coming to you on the basis of yours. And then Keller concludes with this. He says, none of us can stand before God on the basis of our dignity of our rights, or our moral record, not even on the basis of our suffering. And this woman, she understands that reality. But, as I said earlier, she also understands the reality of the nature and character of God, that she believes He is good and gracious and merciful. And as a result, she's enabled to still contend with Jesus for her desperate need, though now, again, not on the basis of any worthiness of hers, But on the goodness of God, she's trusting in his mercy. She's pleading for that. And the result is, she's seen, she's heard, and her need is met. And I believe the very same thing is true for you and I today. This is the second key prerequisite, the thing that must precede contending faith in our lives if we want to practice ourselves. We must come to Jesus with a right understanding of ourselves. That we have not earned nor are we owed anything of what we ask from him. Either through our religious observance, a moral checklist that we have gone through, our good deeds, anything like that. But like this Canaanite woman, as the hymn we sang this morning says, we come with Jesus, we come to Jesus with nothing in our hands to bring. And simply clinging to his mercy. And yet. As we plainly saw in Jesus' parable as well as in our passage today, the strangest paradox that results is that it's the one who sees themselves as unworthy of help and just comes bowing before Jesus with nothing to offer. They're the ones who walk away seen, heard, and justified. So that's contending faith. That's what the practice of it looks like, and that's how we do it. That's what must precede contending faith in order to have it. One, one last beautiful truth that I want to point out from our passage here as a whole, kind of hinted at at the beginning, but I want to just like end our time focusing on this. It absolutely has relevance for us today, is the way that Jesus' interaction with this Gentile woman, not to mention his interaction little bit earlier with the Roman centurion, it's giving us these really beautiful snapshots, these really beautiful glimpses of the global mission of Jesus, the, the worldwide mission of Jesus. We're seeing the first hints of it, because absolutely, as Jesus says, as yes, he did, he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, yes, but as he later says to his disciples in John 10... It says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep, but now here. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Us. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. So, yes, and amen. Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but that lost sheep includes all of us now. It's a mission that extends to all of us, and we're just seeing the initial kind of glimpses of how that's starting out before it just kind of spreads like wildfire. It's a mission that Jesus very much invites every one of his followers to be a part of, actually. We see that uh, following his resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit to empower us for that mission. It's a call that we see at the end of Matthew's Gospel, first of all, right, the Great Commission, Go and make disciples, not of the people of Israel, of all nations. And we also see the beginning of the book of Acts, which records, if you've never read before, it records kind of the foundational work of the church. As it comes together, Jews and Gentiles coming together under one roof, sitting at one table as children of one father and one master. Jesus says there at the beginning of verse Uh, Beginning of Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a global, worldwide mission that Jesus invites us to, and it's a mission that he also makes possible. He makes possible for all of us. The way he does that is by laying down position and power. Actually, by making himself unworthy. Unworthy and unheard and rejected while transferring all of his worthiness to us. As Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The result of which being that now, just like this beautiful contending Gentile woman from our passage today, we can now, as Hebrews 4 says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. Amen.